Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. All my day. The fusion of politics, news, and entertainment has given prominence to comics, especially those such as Jimmy Kimmel, Stephen Colbert, Seth Meyers, John Oliver, and Bill Maher, who serve as attack dogs for the Democratic Party, which has joined forces with the establishment wing of the old Republican Party against Donald Trump and his supporters. By belittling Trump and his followers, these comics feed the smug self-righteousness of the ruling establishment and their sense of moral and intellectual superiority. These comics and the networks that give them platforms, HBO, Comedy Central, TBS, ABC, CBS, NBC, and even CNN, which has hired comics such as W. Camus Bell to host shows on the news network, have little to no effect on the political landscape. They are as loathed and ignored by Trump supporters as they are feted by Trump haters. They are constrained by the corporations and advertisers that employ them. They function as court jesters, never questioning the right of the rulers to rule or the terrible social injustices built into a rigged system. They traffic almost exclusively in negativity, searching out the weird, the bizarre, the stupid, and the inane in celebrity culture or mainstream news reports. They perpetuate the fiction that we live in a democracy. They do not challenge the folly of permanent war from the Middle East to Ukraine. They do not call out the corporations that have deindustrialized the nation and abandoned and impoverished American workers. They attack critics of the system, even if these critics come from the left. John Oliver, for example, devoted a show to mocking Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein. Bill Maher made public his $1 million donation to Barack Obama's 2012 campaign. These comics traffic in a self-defeating cynicism that eschews all critiques of the real configurations of power. Power only laughs at its own jokes. And these are the jokes these mainstream comics tell. Joining me to discuss the transformation of comedy from an art form rooted in the counterculture to one that has largely become a megaphone for power is Lee Camp, who, like the comics of another era, Lenny Bruce, Richard Pryor, Mort Stahl, Bill Hicks, and George Carlin, and a handful of his contemporaries, including Jimmy Dore, is not afraid to use his razor-sharp wit against our real enemies. So censorship of comics is not new. Uh, Lenny, we can go back to Lenny Bruce. Um, and also providing acerbic comics with heavy financial support to essentially buy their loyalty isn't new. But let's go back and talk in the preceding decades where we were, how that operated, and where we are now. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Even though, you know, many of those people you mentioned in that intro, they were my heroes when I was beginning and yeah. starting out. And then yeah. I slowly got to the bottom of things, realized yeah. how the systems worked. Uh, 
But yeah, you're right that censorship is not new. Uh, Lenny Bruce, for for those who don't know, was essentially driven to his death. I mean, he was arrested on just about every stage he would get onto towards the end of his life, uh, simply for his words, for going against religion, for going against the government, uh, making fun of police. And he couldn't make a living. He was chased. They'd threaten his venues with taking away their their liquor license. And he ultimately OD'd. But um, so this isn't new, but I, I think it's almost more insidious now because there was a very select group of gatekeepers back when there were three TV channels, you know, and and so in a way things have opened up. You can now have all this information and it's so accessible and it's comedians from nowhere can go viral on YouTube and things. But if you get far enough and your criticisms are strong enough you are not going to be accepted into those mainstream outlets. Uh, you will be banned from them. You will get uh, pushed out of the way. And and those are who are still there, the, the, the people on Comedy Central regularly, the people on these late night shows, they have made that deal with the corporations that they are not going to really question them in a, in a large scale way. They may have a little line here or there, but they're not gonna get at the heart of the, of the inverted totalitarian system we have. Talk about Bill Hicks. You were the one who had me watch Bill Hicks. He's who's brilliant. Yeah. Um, but he's yeah. an example of that. He, he's, he's a real great example of, you know, his legend has grown. Uh, he was known but not really famous in America when he died. I think it was 1994. Um, he was pretty well known in Britain then, even though he was American. But his legend has really grown because he was saying things about the, our invasion of Iraq for the first Iraq war that held true for the second one. You know, the, how do we know they have WMD because we have the receipts? Uh, you know, those were his lines. And those were the type of things that ultimately did get him censored. Uh, his final letterman did not air famously, uh, even though they, he taped it and they still didn't air it. Um, but he he said things that were so important and he went after those corporations. He went after marketing uh, and how it manipulates message and he did it in a way that really brought large-scale audiences in with laughter. Uh, it wasn't like he was losing everybody and wasn't funny. He was tremendously funny. And so his legend has really grown, and, and he now ranks alongside you know George Carlin. Well, we should talk about others. Carlin, because he appears to have had a pretty successful career and yet have held fast to that kind of... Uh, you know, ability to ridicule the real centers of power. Yeah, initially, he's had, he had an incredibly interesting career because initially, and this is the way, we talked about the gatekeepers a moment ago. Initially, this, if you were going to question things, the deeper things, you had to first get famous doing mm. the clean comedy that was right, allowable right. on the Ed Sullivan show and stuff like that. So if you're talking, you know, Richard Pryor and, and George Carlin are a few examples. They got famous, and Lenny Bruce, they got famous doing that clean, nice oh. family style comedy oh. that they would allow on the late night shows or the, you know, the various shows. And then they started to question things themselves and it was kind of too late for the system. L Lenny Bruce was already hugely famous. George Carlin already hugely famous. But the system then realized Lenny Bruce was a risk and they started chasing him and arresting him. Um, Carlin, his big change was he realized he wasn't being himself. He wasn't being open. He was doing this clean comedy. And he had a very dramatic shift where he hated himself. And he switched everything, started using curse words on stage, uh, which got him fired from all his Vegas gigs, lucrative gigs. Uh, and for a few years, was barely earning a living. But then 
the culture turned around. All of a sudden, he got respected for being the type to push authority and push against these restrictions and became hugely famous kind of again. Um, but then he wasn't at that time. He wasn't really going after kind of the the endless war state or the American uh, empire. Those weren't his criticisms. Instead, it was it was the cursing that was challenging and went all the way to the Supreme Court. It, it was a Supreme Court case as to whether his curse words could be heard on our radio stations. Uh, but eventually and. I don't hear a lot of people make this point. And the, re the reason he was allowed to do this was because HBO was a young new thing. It was subscription-based. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really subscription-based television happening before that much. And he was given these comedy specials where he wasn't accountable to any corporate ads. He could do, they, they put him up there because he was George Carlin. He did like 10 specials and they just wanted people to subscribe. So he could swing for the fences and do whatever he wanted. And he did it until his death. And, and he put out some of these brilliant and scathing, scathing uh, uh, critiques of, of American empire, you know, jokes about how, oh, we're really good at bombing brown people. You know, those were, those were the type of bits that America had never heard. And the reason he was allowed to was a because he was famous before that, and b because mm. he was on a subscription rather than corporate uh, based platform. Nowadays, HBO, however, is still not going to have people that you know right. question Israel, or question uh, uh, the 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 American Empire. But. It seems that comics, because they have catered to corporate power, advertisers laid off a serious critique of the Democratic Party uh, because of it's a kind of one-sided comedy. I'm talking about the mainstream. They've essentially uh, rendered themselves utterly ineffectual. And I think back to, uh, there's a wonderful memoir by the Lutheran minister, uh, Martin Niemöller, who finds himself in the Dachau concentration camp, I believe it was Niemöller, with the cabaret owners from Berlin who savaged the Nazis. Uh, on the in the cabaret in the cabaret right. shows, uh, but of course they weren't going after the ineffectual uh, aristocratic government that didn't know how to handle the uh, fallout from the Great Depression or you know, had abolished unemployment insurance. It was a very similar kind of and and because they were uh, essentially working tacitly on behalf of the system, uh, they they didn't have any kind of real political impact. And I, and mm -hmm. I, I, I think you would agree that that's kind of a, uh, an apt analogy for what's happening here. Yeah. It, people may look at these late night shows, uh, Colbert, et cetera, and say, what do you mean? They mock the mm -hmm. rulers all the time. They, they may even, you know, I haven't watched them recently, they may even make fun of Biden. But they're only, even if they're making fun of Biden and Trump equally, which they're not, it was more, far more heavy on Trump, but either way, they're making fun of these surface level critiques. So, you know, he's acting dumb. He fell down. It's it's never uh, the the system writ large. It's never the American empire. It's never endless war. So as long as you have people thinking, oh, this is funny. We're making fun of the rulers. We're doing this edgy thing while never getting to the center, never getting to the, 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 the critiques that could actually change things, you're still servicing the whole system. You know, you go back to the Greeks, uh, uh, you know, comedy was Aristophanes. I mean, these were uh, political uh, um, birds, and these were 
uh, and they would take down the ruling elite of Athens. Uh, in, in Greek drama, comedy had an extremely important political function. You and I were both on RT. You had a great show on RT, and you did all of this. I want you to talk about, in your mind, what great comedy should do. Yeah, I, I think it, it has to make power nervous. <laughs> I think is is the end goal. If they can sit up you like uh, sit up there on a stage like they do at the White House press corps oh. dinners and laugh with you, yeah. then clearly you're not that threatening. Right. <laughs> clearly you're not hitting at the things that power is afraid to will get out to the people. Uh so to me that is and that is actually what radical comedy that is seeking to create even the slightest bit of change uh, has to do. And we, we just don't, we don't get it from the most of the famous comedians that people can name on their late night TV shows. And th there's two reasons for that. You know, one is that many of these people, they either haven't educated themselves. They haven't read your books, Chris. They haven't educated themselves enough to get to that point that they understand that kind of create critique, or if they have, they understand how the, how that television system works. They understand you don't stay there for long if you're making those critiques. I mean, hell, I was on a, a a network that wasn't even a mainstream network, and still my my show and your show were uh, were ultimately sanctioned to death. And uh, well, and, let's be clear, they were all of the shows that were on YouTube were erased. Yeah, two yeah over two for me over two thousand videos, just basically a digital book burning of everything that existed. Um, and uh, unfortunately, not that I enjoy seeing it happen. Unfortunately, that means that our critiques were effective and were threatening to to the powerful. Let's talk about some of the things that you were able to say on that show uh, that can't be said in the mainstream. Well, uh, you know, I always like to make the point because people think you're on RT, you're told what to say. Uh, as you and I can tell people, I was never told what to say. I was never, I wrote all my own words, which for comedy shows is unheard of. They, these people all have teams of writers. I did not. I wrote every single word and was never censored. Now, that being said, I could go after things that you, that are completely hidden from mainstream media, uh, things such as Israel being an apartheid state, things such as just big ag. I mean, how often do you hear yeah. criticisms of big ag, which controls our government and is one of the largest environmental destroyers on this planet? Uh, you know, uh, criticisms of, of so many corporate entities, whether it was Cargill or Monsanto or Nestle, or in, in, and not just go after them with a slight little joke, but go after them in a real uh, deep and, and real way and to give people an example of how it works on other networks, which th I th this is a single page in a entire book that was written about The Daily Show that summed it all up for me. And it has always st stuck with me. Right after Jon Stewart finished The Daily Show, they put out a book. I don't remember what it was called, but with all of the interviews and everything showing how The Daily Show worked, the internal mechanism. And I, I found it very fascinating. But one page, they go... We were, I was the guy, you know, there was a certain person who was in charge of if the show wanted to make fun of a corporate sponsor or someone under the umbrella of one of the corporate sponsors, that person, uh, this, this uh, person who worked for The Daily Show would call that company and try to convince them it's cool to be made fun of. It's okay to be made fun of in The Daily Show. And the clear implication was if that company says no, it's not getting on there. So Imagine the the level of corporations that are somehow tied to Viacom, Comcast, all of those, every entity. And if they don't want to be made fun of on the Daily Show, then they're not going to be. 
Well, then The Daily Show can't critique half of what owns this country. <laughs> it's, it's insane to be like, we are a, a show criticizing how America works, trying to show people the internal structure, and we can't critique half of the system. Well, they can also pull advertising. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about woke culture and comedy. <laughs> yeah. Whether it's a good or bad thing. I'll let you go into that <laughs> um, snake pit. <laughs> I, I, I have a bit of a nuanced view on this. I think in general, it, yes, it has harmed a lot of comedy in that people are perhaps, I'd say, too easily offended. They just hear a buzzword and they decide that that this person needs should never be allowed to speak on a stage or on a screen again. So it has gone overboard. Absolutely. However, can you, can you give me some examples or an example? Um, I think an example would be if you have to think of the entirety of the joke. So some people will hear that a joke uses, you know, the word gay or uses the word, uh, you know, obese or something. And they say, that's terrible. He's making fun. Well, but did the entire joke make fun of those? Like, I don't know. I, I think you have to take the entire joke and its structure and everything into account. And people don't do that. They just hear a word and they say, I don't like that that word was used. So to me, that's that's taking it too far. However, I also want to say that you hear a lot of more often right wingers, but a lot of comedians in general act like they're being canceled because someone got offended. And it's like, no, people also have a right to be offended. If you hear a comedian who to you is offensive and you storm out of the show, that's your right. You had a right to be offended and you were offended. Now, saying I need to make sure this person does not have a career is a step too far, uh, generally speaking. Um, so I think both sides are wrong on this. I think the pendulum often swings back and forth, uh, you know, in, in American history. You know, there there was a time when when uh, blackface was quite common on American stages and and now it's rightfully not, <laughs> you know, and these things swing back and forth. But um, I think I, I think that by by actually going too far, by acting like uh, someone should lose their career because they said a joke that you didn't like. I think we actually. We actually open up a space where. Now these conversations can't be had. You open up a space where now it's cool to see how many people you can offend. Uh, and, and so, I don't know. It, it, I have a nuanced view on it, and it may piss off both sides, I think. <laughs> what about Dave Chappelle? Because he's been called out for this. Yeah, so a couple of points on this. One, people say he was canceled. He's not canceled. He's, he makes $100 million a year or whatever it is. $100 million deal with Netflix. This is not canceled. Right. This is, you know, you, you could make an argument that I've been canceled when you lose your YouTube and your podcast and your TV show all at once. Dave Chappelle's not canceled. So when people say someone's been canceled, it's crap. Uh, now, do I like his, his anti-trans comedy? No, I, I think it's pretty lame. But if people like it, then okay, they have a right to hear that form of comedy. My bigger issue, honestly, and this doesn't mean he should be canceled, is... Of all the oppressed peoples in this world, like that I think Dave Chappelle seems to at times have had some concerns about, of all the people that have, that have, of all the issues that we could be dealing with, we could be fighting over the six million people that have died from, you know, the, the US global war on terror, those type of things, really? You're upset that they changed the symbol on the bathroom? Mm. It's, it's mind blowing that that is your issue. And not only is it your issue, it's your issue on four straight specials. It's like, clearly you have some kind of hang up where you can't get past it. Like, 
So what happens? I mean, does comedy go underground? I mean, what are people like you doing? I mean, in terms of trying to keep getting my stuff out there, uh, I do continue to do my live streams. Uh, you know, I, I try and be on as many platforms as I can so that they can't be deleted, uh, or at least one of them can be deleted and I'm still out there. But um, yeah, I mean, it is, it's, it's a tricky time and it's a dangerous time uh, for, for these type of, of uh, truly radical comedy. Uh, I do hope that it it continues and people don't. There's a lot of self-censoring, I think, that goes on. People understand what's going to get a YouTube strike and they stop saying those things. Um, and that perhaps is almost more threatening than just straight up deleting of channels because that, yes, it happened to me, but that doesn't happen that much. What happens probably more often across all of these platforms is people begin self-censoring because they're, oh, you can't. You can't question that. You can't talk about uh, Palestinians. You can't talk about this or or that. So they just stop talking about it because why? Why risk your platform? You know? So you have this irony where you have far more platforms, mm -hmm. but you can say less. In in some regards, yeah. Well, because the apparatus of censorship, right? And this was came out in the Twitter files. Yeah. Uh, it hits all of the social media, and they they dictate. You know, they are both right wing, left wing critics. If you're a, critiquing that establishment center, you're targeted, which is why you were targeted and why I was targeted. So we may have a multiplicity of platforms, but we don't actually have greater freedom. Yeah. And you spend, you, you can spend a long time, many years building up these platforms, uh, finding your fans uh, for comedy or finding readers, and then it can be shut down in a minute. Uh, so it's it's like you know you're you're playing whack-a-mole trying to or they're playing whack-a-mole trying to stop you, um, but yeah I I I don't know any other way to do it. I guess a lot of comedians would just ultimately say throw their hands up and say I'm going to do a different kind of comedy because I'm certainly capable of that. I spent you know the first five years of my comedy career doing comedy that was not offensive to the empire, uh, but. Nowadays, I, I can't ever see backing down. I can't see doing it any other way. To me, the road I want to be on is the one where these critiques matter, not where I just get the laugh. Yes, I want to laugh, but I also want to be uh, speaking about these incredibly important issues. And I can't see abandoning all that. You know, maybe other comedians do. And yet there are pretty powerful financial incentives. I mean, we both know comics that were on Air America and were overtly political and are now doing extremely well and have shed themselves of any political commentary at all. Yeah, or or shed themselves at least of the brand of political comedy uh, that will get you censored or stopped. Um, and I think th there's a lot of people and, and it goes for, it's interesting that the how, how parallel it is to journalists. I mean, there are many journalists who maybe started to get up to that line realized what it was and backed off. And now you go, whatever happened to so-and-so, you know, whatever happened to that, to that journalist that I really respected. And now they seem to be parroting state department, uh, <laughs> releases. Um, and it's, I think a lot of them get up to that line and they see, oh, this is, this is where I can go, you know, and, and if I go there, then the money starts to shut down, the positions start to shut down. And, you know, it's a lot more fun over here with all the money bags. <laughs> So if you, if you are on the mainstream, is, are there consistent themes? Does it retreat? And you know far more about this than I do. 
retreat primarily into the personal? Do you find common patterns among mainstream comics? Yeah, I'd say a lot of it retreats into the personal. Uh, and I'd say for those who claim to have some political comedy in their routine, it's usually just, uh, you know, a few Trump jokes or things like that. It's not actually going deeper than that. Um, and and they as a comedian, you know, so so like I lived in New York and I was on stage every night of the week, often three shows a night. And you see what gets laughs from crowds, but you also see what is going to get you booked on these late night yeah. shows. You know, you you see your 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 colleagues, your, your compatriots in comedy. You see, uh, oh, that guy got selected for late night. That guy got selected. For late night. Oh, the person that's uh, ranting about how we're killing children overseas, that one's not getting selected for late night. So you see the path. And I, I think some comedians consciously go, oh, this is the one that works. Well, you have examples. Randy Credico would be a good example. He was, I think, mainstream, yep. right? Well, and and uh, you know, Randy Kretika, one of his one of his many claims to fame. I mean, now he's on the Ukrainian kill list. But as before, am I, as am I. Once uh, are you on there I too? With Roger Waters. Congrats. <laughs> uh, but before you know, going back to the '80s, one of his claims to fame was he appeared on Johnny Carson and told some jokes they didn't like. Uh, and they they say he's the only one to appear on Johnny Carson and lose gigs because he was <laughs> challenging the the American ruling elite in a way that other comics were not. Um, so yeah, uh, Credico's uh, an interesting example. How important is comedy to the sustenance of an open society or democracy? I think, you know, maybe I'm uh, biased, but I, I think very important. Uh, but it has to have those two sides. There, There is wonderful comedy that is not critiquing anything. There is abstract comedy. There is, there is comedians who, who I have, uh, you know, loved like Stephen Wright and Mitch Hedberg that, uh, we're never talking about anything political, nothing about. And so it's not, it's not that I think that all comedy has to be radical, edgy, uh, comedy that, that makes people think, but if you're going to be in even slightly in that realm or think that you do that at all, then my view would be don't just do the little lighthearted uh, Trump jokes that that changes nothing. If you've made a choice that you are going to take a stance on these issues, then then do it. And so I think a functioning society needs both those sides. You, yes, you, you should have the, the, the comedy, the abstract comedy and the non-political comedy. It's important. People want to laugh. They want to analyze their culture. Uh, and, and I think that's all very important. But you also need to have the other side. And if you don't, um, then you are in a form of an authoritarian society that can't handle critiques of itself. And I think there's a good argument to be made that the ruling elite are less able to handle critiques as the empire crumbles, as things become more tenuous. Well, you look at, I covered the Stasi state in East Germany. I mean, making jokes about the communist dictator Honecker would see you get in jail, even to a friend. Same was true under Stalin. I mean- yeah. That w when you live in a totalitarian and the Nazis as well, I mean, they they don't have any sense of humor at all. Right, it's eradicated. Right, you can make jokes of the vulnerable or the demonized, but not a power. Yeah, and it, I mean, I'm I'm no historian, but I hear it was similar with art, where the, oh yeah, when completely. the if the paintings were were clearly criticizing the government, oh, then and books <laughs> and and books, uh, yeah. then that was a problem. But if it was abstract, and you right, know, then you. Well, the German film industry boomed under the Nazis, but it was all froth. It was all light entertainment. Right, right. 
I wonder if the the attacks on the mainstream, which are largely anti-Trump, are actually uh, counterproductive in the in the long term. The attacks on the mainstream but, the uh, against Trump. Trump, the constant yeah. hammering of Trump and his supporters. I wonder if that's ultimately counterproductive. I mean, it's quite possible. I know that. So it can be counterproductive in that it makes his followers well, think, it, it widens, with the rebel. It widens the divide. Yeah. They hate the institutions anyway that are giving these people platforms. Yeah. And it also makes liberals, which not just in comedy, but in so many areas, it makes liberals think, oh, we're fighting the good fight. Yeah, yeah. We're fighting against the bad guy. Meanwhile, they'll cheer, you know, oh, well, Biden, well, he's no Trump. You know, meanwhile, he's locked up more black and brown people than yeah. Trump ever could have hoped to. Yeah, yeah. So it, it makes the Trump jokes actually make liberals think they're doing right. You know, they're fighting against the evil. When in fact, they're only exacerbating the antagonisms, the, the siloed demographic. Are there any uh, serious comics who are strong supporters of Trump? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't keep up with uh, with what the kids are doing these days, but yeah, no, there are there there are fewer right-wingers, but they do exist. Um and I think that most of the right-wingers I knew in New York City in the comedy scene, they'd be more right-wing off stage. So mm -hmm. they'd they'd hide it on stage because they knew that audiences would often back off if you got too right-wing, mm -hmm. but the, the, it was clear that that's where their worldview was when they were off stage. So they also knew wh which way to go to 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 be acceptable on you know late night shows and stuff. Great. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team: Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.